in the manner of speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 27, April 2020. Secret Languages. Hello, and welcome to the latest podcast from Paul Meyer Dialect Services and the International Dialects of English Archive. If you're listening to this podcast in 2020, I hope it comes as a welcome diversion from the crisis, which no one living through it needs me to name. But if you're listening at some point in the future, I hope the distant future, the crisis I'm talking about is the global coronavirus pandemic, which has completely altered our daily lives for a time. A time which I certainly hope will be short. Everything has changed. Schools are teaching online. Business employees are are working from home if they haven't been furloughed. In my own particular case, uh, films and plays I was scheduled to coach have been cancelled or postponed. Countries are in lockdown, closed to outsiders, airlines shut down. The sports calendar has been suspended. Theatres have been closed, just as they did intermittently in Shakespeare's time when the plague came calling. London actors at that time took their shows on the road to less affected provinces. In 2020, everything is moving online. I and my fellow voice coaches have been inundated with calls for online coaching and teaching as the schools and universities close and proscriptions against public gatherings mean that Ever more of the spoken word has become virtual, mediated by electronic media. Strange times. But wherever and whenever you are, welcome and on with the show. First, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. I lived with my family in the country until I was in the fourth grade. The house, we had no electricity. We had no bathroom. We had an outhouse. If you guessed the American South, congratulations. But if you managed to pin it down to Arkansas, double congratulations. It was Ideas Arkansas 28, submitted by Professor Ben Corbett newly promoted to senior editor. He's an associate professor at the University of Arkansas. The subject was born and raised in Lonoke. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, L-O-N-O-K-E, which is a little east of Little Rock. To hear the whole recording, search for Arkansas 28 at dialectsarchive.com. And now here's this month's challenge. Where did this speaker spend her formative years? Okay, I'm going to tell a little story about a vacation I went on. It goes back like 25 years ago. And myself, my sister and four other friends, we took a trip to uh, Ireland. Tune in for the answer next time on In a Manner of Speaking. This past month, I've been doing what I imagine a lot of us have been doing. Alternately glued to the news and uh, trying to escape it. As I've been... Surfing the internet, trying to escape the news, I've somehow become fixated on secret languages, the subject of uh, my meditation today. Secret languages and hidden languages, perhaps. I've been struck very vividly, of course, that language does two completely contradictory things. 
It can reveal. It can help us share reality. It helps us co-create identity. It preserves memories. It transmits the truth. Preserves history. Transmits our feelings, our desires. All, all of those things are revealing of what we might think of as, as more positive aspects. But then, of course, language conceals or distorts. Uh, it's capable of lies, of deception, of fiction, rhetoric in, in the bad sense of something persuasive that's not quite true. Sleight of tongue. We have sleight of hand, but sleight of tongue. Magicians misdirect us by sleight of tongue, perhaps. Perhaps politicians and even poets uh, do that. Certainly con artists. Even Shakespeare occasionally wrote disparagingly about the deceptive aspects of poetry. Do you remember uh, Theseus in A Midsummer Night's Dream? When confronted with the story of the lover's strange tale of what happened in the forest, he's talking to Hippolyta and he says, uh, I never may believe these antic fables nor these fairy toys. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold, that is, the madman. The lover, all as frantic, sees Helen's beauty in a brow of Egypt. And here's the, here's the piece I wanted to get to. The poet's eye, in fine frenzy rolling, doth glance from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven. And as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them to shapes and gives to airy nothing a local habitation and a name. So Theseus doesn't have much good to say about about words and thoughts and imagination and even, even poets and poetry. Proving that words are certainly very slippery things, spoken words even more so perhaps, when you add in irony and creative ambiguity, word play. Even tone of voice can completely inflect a sentence a completely different way, right? The time I spent with him was just wonderful. The time I spent with him was just wonderful. <laughs> so, hid hidden meanings and, and lies can lurk even when the language isn't secret. Uh, and I guess right now during this, this crisis we're facing, we, we need all of the powers of language, the written and the spoken, to serve the first meaning, to unite us in a, a common language of based on truth and facts. But on to a, a, a certainly a, a more obvious form of my theme, which is secret and hidden languages, which struck me that a, maybe a whole podcast series is, is possible on that. And I came across terms like outlaw languages, cant, uh, rogues, peddlers, thieves, can't. Vagabonds, actors. <laughs> yeah, vagabonds and actors were at one time classed together and, and as such they sort of shared a, shared a secret language, a language that uh, became known as, uh, as Kant, C-A-N-T. Peddler's French sometimes. I did a little research on, on what's called secret outlaw languages and 
realize that outsiders of any kind need a way to communicate in secret. I'm reading from a nice website by Abraham Rinquist here. It's essential to their survival. The exact number of cryptolects, isn't that a great term? Secret languages known only to the initiated is unknown, but many have influenced popular vocabulary. Make no mistake, outlaws move the mainstream, says Abraham Rehnquist. And of course the terms argo or argot come up. Jargon, every profession, requires neophytes to master the lingo, keep the outsiders out and keep the insiders in, bonded by their initiate language. You think of the law with its Latinate lingo, the, the heretofores and wheretofores and habeas corpuses. And came across the term anti-language, which I guess is, is pretty much the same as, as outlaw languages. That's a term by a linguist by the name of Halliday. And uh, he used it in much the same way as outlaw languages. Or, But anti-languages uh, uses use the same grammar and, and words uh, as the mainstream, but uses them in a different way to, to make sure the outsiders are kept out and they can only be understood by the insiders. And it occurred to me that perhaps in addition to uh, every profession or, or tribe within the global village, uh, every marginalized or disenfranchised community will develop dialects, will develop a jargon to allow them to talk without being observed by their overlords. Came across a Creole variant called Gypsy, spoken in uh, Panama, in, in on a little island called Bastimentos. It's a, an English-derived cryptolect. Keeps them safe, keeps them secure, keeps them identified and sharing in their common identity. Back in 1929 uh, and 30, the early 30s, uh, a period of history that's being oft compared to 2020 for obvious reasons with the uh, financial crisis brought upon by the pandemic. The uh, So many men particularly hit the road, hopped the freight train and uh, became hobos. And they developed a secret language, uh, written and spoken. And uh, I came across a term called hobo hieroglyphics. They would leave little messages for each other that let other hobos know where there was a, a good meal to be had and the, whether you had to submit to prayer in order to get it, uh, that kind of thing. So it was a little messages left here and there on the on the trail. Came across, Lun, I guess I'm saying it right, Lunfardo, L-U-N-F-A-R-D-O, Lunfardo, uh, which I understand comes from the Buenos Aires underworld, but is now the, the lingua franca of tango. So these thieves can't. These, this underworld language, these marginalized languages, have a habit of moving into the mainstream and, and being adopted in, in good time. And it's occurred to me that the, the topic of this uh, podcast, the spoken word, is very appropriate, as, as secret languages tend not to be written down. That would tend to compromise their secrecy, of course. So by their very nature, they're often orally transmitted. So we don't often know how to spell or even pronounce many of the new coinages that, that sprinkle those secret languages. My one real claim to any familiarity with a secret language is growing up in London and coming in contact, albeit distant contact, with Cockney rhyming slang. Amazing. So colourful, so inventive. 
and it it grew out of the uh, thieves cant of the 18th century and 19th century and and its its motives were the same to to perpetuate a language to create a language and perpetuate it that un- outsiders couldn't understand and uh, here's here's a little paragraph that i put together out of familiar cockney rhyming slang terms you probably unless you are an initiate you won't have any idea what i'm talking about so imagine uh, two blokes in a pub and one says to the other i couldn't have them and leave it took a butcher's at me trouble on the way up the apples had to rub me mincers said to her what's the matter with your barnet she says oh i was too cream cracked to bother with it this morning so just popped on the old irish larded with um, cockney rhyming slang and let me let me unpack it for you and tell you how cockney rhyming slang works so adam and eve it i couldn't believe it so obviously believe it adam and eve it rhyme so you use the rhyme word uh, often you drop the rhyming word now in the case of adam and eve it i think you keep both those words adam and eve Next one, took a butcher's, took a butcher's at me trouble, took a butcher's. Well, butcher's is short, is short, shortened form of butcher's hook, which is Cockney rhyming slam, slang for look. So you drop the hook and keep butcher's, took a butcher's. That was one I came across long before I went any deeper into Cockney rhyming slang because it's, it's passed into general parlance and you don't even know where it came from. Take a butcher's at this, you might say. Took a butcher's at me trouble. Trouble, Cockney rhyming slang for trouble and strife, which rhymes with wife. Drop the strife and you're left with trouble, so your trouble is your wife. Took a butcher's at me trouble on the way up the apples. Apples, short for apples and pears, rhymes with stairs. Drop the pears and keep the apples why up the apples had to rub me mincers rub my eyes mince pies your eyes drop the pies and you're left with minces or mincers had to rub me mincers said to her what's the matter with your barnet barnet is cockney rhyming slang for barnet fair barnet's a outlying district of london they used to have a fair there so barnet fair drop fair and then you're left with barnet meaning hair what's the matter with your barnet she says i was too cream crackered to bother with it this morning cream crackered <laughs> is cockney rhyming slang for knackered which in itself is pretty arcane and uh, inaccessible knackered in england uh, I, I poor Horses that had reached the end of their natural life were sent to the knacker's yard to be rendered down for glue, I guess. So to be knackered is to be very, very tired. So by extension, cream crackered. It's a kind of a, a biscuit or, or a cookie, cream crackers. No American would, would understand that at all. Cream crackered, meaning knackered, meaning tired. Oh, too cream crackered to bother with it this morning. So I just popped on the old Irish. Irish Cockney rhyming slang for Irish jig, meaning wig. So that means she put on her wig. So you drop the Irish jig, but keep Irish, which means a wig. Popped on the old Irish. 
See if you understand it now. Couldn't Adam and Eve it. Took a butcher's at me trouble on the way up the apples. Had to rub me mincers. Said to her, what's the matter with your barnet? She says, ah, it's too cream cracker to bother with it this morning. So just popped on the old Irish. So that would certainly uh, succeed in excluding the uninitiated, wouldn't it? You could, you could speak in that language around the employers, the toffs, the, uh, the ruling class, and they would have no idea what you were saying. Uh, particularly useful if your activities or conversation were about something on the criminal side, right? It's it's not only a secret for the sake of, of, of self-preservation, it's also simply playful. It goes to the, the Cockney's love of playing with language. It's ludic. I love that word. David Crystal uses that word, of ludic language. Word play from the Latin uh, ludo, I play. So it's inventive uh, and its need for obscurity, uh, of course, uh, keeps pushing the boundaries. Here's, here's one term that you'll enjoy that shows how the, the slang keeps morphing, keeps pushing the boundaries, keeps evolving. And this, this is one which, which actually came full circle. The term is Aris, A-R-I-S, Aris. So it was adopted. Uh, let, let, let's see where that first started. So we, we started with one's arse, one's arse, one's ass, one's backside, one's bottom. And arse, Cockney rhyming slang for that, became bottle and glass. So as you now know, you drop the glass and you keep bottles. So your bottom becomes your bottle. I fell down on me bottle. But in time... Um, bottle itself became cockney rhyming slang and uh, and was replaced by aristotle aristotle <laughs> so uh, and then the last part of that got dropped which left you with aris which is nearly the same as the original ass or ass very mobile very fluid very inventive and uh, keeps morphing to to keep the secret to keep the playfulness to keep the the wit alive. Here's one that I really hope to do a separate podcast on. It's called Polari. P-O-L-A-R-I. Polari. And it was the secret, mainly London, language of the gay community in the early part of the 20th century. And I was exposed to it um, without even knowing what it was. It's, it's called Polari based on the Italian parlare, uh, to speak. Uh, and it has some origins in in Romany and and it, Italian and Romance languages around the Mediterranean. And uh, it was it enabled the gay community in the time when homosexuality was of course illegal to conduct conversation without being suspected by any casual observer from the straight community. And it had a very extensive vocabulary. And here's the strange part. Sometimes secrets are hide best in plain view. And this is this is one that, that hid in plain sight. There's a There was a very popular radio comedy program that played on the BBC every Sunday for several years around lunchtime. And all of Britain hurried home from the pub for their Sunday lunch and turned on the radio and listened to Round the Horn. Uh, starring Kenneth Horne and Kenneth Williams and Hugh Paddock and 
Betty Marsden. You can still go to YouTube and hear some of these these programs. And uh, Kenneth Williams and, and Hugh Paddock played pretty much every week um, a couple of gay guys called Julian and Sandy. Hello, I'm Julian. This is my friend Sandy. And the, their sketches were larded with Polari, a very explicit Polari. No apologies, no translations provided. And uh, I came across uh, Polari, the, the Lost Language of Gay Men, and Fabulosa, the story of Polari, Britain's secret gay language. A couple of scholarly works by a professor at uh, Lancaster University in, in Britain, Paul Baker. I certainly hope to have a podcast with Paul Baker at some time. He uh, points out that uh, Polari involves rhyming slang, uh, from the Cockney, um, also backslang, which is often spelling words backwards or reversing the syllable order. It's got Yiddish in it uh, and a lot of Italian or Romance language deriva- uh, derived terms. So, for instance, uh, great or good is bona. You know, we have bona fide and, you know, we, you're familiar with bona as, as meaning great or good. Vada, to see. Uh, here's some backslang, eek. E-E-K, which is short for E-C-A-F, E-C-A-F, which is face, spelled backwards. So, your E-C-A-F was shortened to your eek. So, you've got a lovely eek, a lovely face. Um, they also did some backslang for hair. They simply spelled hair backwards, and that com- becomes R-I-A-H, and was pronounced, I think, Raya. So, you... In, in the uh, Julian and Sandy sketches, you might hear a phrase like, Bona Tavada, your dolly eek. Great to see your lovely face. Bona Ria, great hair. Bona Tavada, your dolly eek. Bona Raya, nice to see your pretty face. Great hair. I won't tell you the interesting story of how it rapidly fell from currency and popularity. I'll leave that for when Paul Baker, as I hope, will, will be my guest and explain it from a scholarly point of view. If you've ever done The Beggar's Opera or that wonderful play by Timberlake Wharton Baker, Our Country's Good, you will have come across uh, Thieves' Cant of the 1800s. John Gay wrote The Beggar's Opera, which is steeped in the the Thieves' Cant, the Argo. All the characters have got names from the underworld for the criminal underclass. Characters like Peachum, based on the word to inform, to be an informer. There's a character called Nimming Ned. Nimming was to steal, to thieve. Lots of the female characters have derogatory terms for prostitutes. Dolly Trull, tr- a trull was a prostitute. Betty Doxy, another term for a lady of the night. Timberlake Wurtenbaker, when she wrote Our Country's Good, which is based on the penal colonies in New South Wales that Britain established to ship off a lot of the convicted criminals of Britain, some who did no more than steal a loaf of bread, I understand. She drew heavily on a 1725 dictionary called the New Canting Dictionary. You can still find it online. Um, Unknown author, which actually collected and sort of outed the language. So its, its secrecy was blown by this person who peached, informed on the thieves community. Anyway, look into that if you have a moment. It's fascinating. My old friend David 
Crystal has a wonderful section on secret and hidden languages in his wonderful uh, Cambridge Encyclopedia. And I was reading those two pages. I'd like to read. I'd like to read from it, if if I may. Uh, he talks about criminal codes and cryptology and and how that's prevalent in every language. And he talks about back slang and sometimes center slang and pig Latin. I'll come on to a little bit of that later. But I was fascinated by his very short piece on gematria. Had its origins in mystical practices of the Middle Ages. It uh, depended on the assignment of numbers, a number for each letter. And it allowed the student to assign a numerical value to words and to compare words in Holy Scripture for hidden secret correspondences. So this was the secret language of God that they were looking for, the secret word of the Almighty. And uh, some still believe, of course, that uh, there are significant correlations that might shed further light on the revealed word of God. And rather playfully, David says, linguists take note that tongue and lexicon both have an equal numerical value of 82. And sibilant and hissing, synonyms for the same thing, are adjacent numbers. Bible and holy writ are separated significantly by one only 100. Mount Sinai, or Mount Sinai, and the laws of God both have a numerical value of 135. And Jesus, Messiah, Son, God, Cross, and Gospel all have a numerical value of 74. Uh, this presumably worked in the Aramaic or, the, or perhaps the Greek. I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure which language, which alphabet was given the number value. So I came across Gematria. thought I'd share that with you. Have you ever heard children speaking a secret language? I never have, but I came across numerous references to maybe as many as a hundred different children's secret languages. And one is called Ob. And it's frightfully difficult. Here's, here's how it might sound. Dobit yabu wabunt tabu nobbo hobau tabu spabik ob. Translating into, did you want to know how to speak ob? Dobit yabu wabunt tabu nobbo hobau tabu spabik ob. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, it occurred to me that um, often sacred languages, uh, priestly languages, are have their element of cryptology in them too, priestly languages. I think of the persistence of and resonance of Latin in the Catholic service long after English speakers had forgotten the, the original Latin meaning, but it had the sound of something magical, something sacred. And so giving it up for the more vulgar English was, was very, very hard, I can imagine. And I'm sure we could all put ourselves in that same position of not wanting to let go of something that's a little bit arcane, a little bit impenetrable, because the impenetrable language of the poem or the story is part of its charm. You know, I remember being brought up on the um, the King James Bible and and loving the sound of the uh, of the older language it wasn't in latin anymore but it was in in uh, in the language of of the 1600s of course 
wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Which, which sounds so much flatter when translated into, didn't you know that I've got to be doing my father's business? Jesus says that to one of his disciples. Wist ye not? Didn't you know? And perhaps even before I knew its real meaning, just the sound of wist ye not was magic to me. I felt I was an initiate somehow by understanding it, which has left me dumbfounded when I come across the the fact that the Harry Potter novels were not only translated into other languages, but also into American English. And I thought, why? You could gain the, There was the charm in the original language of the Harry Potter novels. You know, they translated trainers into sneakers and they translated sellotape into scotch tape or spellotape, translated sweets into candy, translated cue into line. And for an idiom like, uh, he did his nut, meaning he, he lost it. You know, they translated that into went ballistic, as well as, you know, things that everybody can work out. They translated torch into flashlight and Father Christmas into Santa Claus. Well, it emasculates uh, and uh, makes the language anemic and, and ordinary. So I think my reaction, if you share that reaction too, will will point to the fact that we kind of love a secret language, like love to be in the know and, and thrill to the resonance of a tribal argo. I suppose cryptography, code-making, code-breaking all fall into this category of secret or hidden languages a little bit. Did you ever do Pig Latin? Pretty easy stuff. I've ot gay ixnay to say. I've got nothing to say. Nix ixnay. Got ot gay. Nix ixnay. Say say. I've ot gay ixnay to say. Pig Latin. And uh, I've, I discovered that every language has a similar version. Spanish has uh, efe and pe, if I'm pronouncing those correctly. And uh, vesre, which is a Spanish back slang. So in which case, casa, Spanish for house. I'm not sure whether this is efe or pe, but it's, it's, it's a syllable adding trick. So casa becomes capasapa and manana tomorrow becomes mapanyapanapa mapanyapanapa so that would serve nicely to obscure the meaning wouldn't it French has verlan v-e-r-l-a-n another form of backwards uh, a form of backslang it's a, a direct reversal of the French word for reverse, which is l'envers, L apostrophe E N V E R S, l'envers. Reverse the syllables and you've got verlan. And that too was an original uh, secret language of, of the Parisian underworld, I believe. And in this very popular form of slang, particularly among young people, uh, bizarre becomes zarbi, bonjour becomes jourbon. Café becomes Feca. Français becomes Sefran. In femme um, is not reversed. A single syllable word is. There are no syllables to reverse, but the spelling is reversed, sort of. So, une femme, French for a woman, becomes une meuf, 
F-E-M-E-U-F. Not an exact reversal of the F-E-M-M-E, fam, but uh, certainly sounds like it. So, what a strange girl. Might be uh, quelle meuf zarbi, instead of quelle femme bizarre. Quelle meuf zarbi. So every language does it, apparently. Um, in our own time, the language of cyberspace and, and hacking. I don't understand all these terms, but I came across them. Black hat, botnet, chip off, hacktivist, jailbreak, pen testing, phishing. Some of these we've, we, we're familiar with. And clearly every younger generation creates its own Argo that helps define and separate them from the older generation. Uh, the language of hip hop and rap coming from uh, mostly from AAVE, African-American Vernacular English. Bent means drunk. Biscuit is a gun. Cheese is money. Fly means cool. Ghost means to leave quickly. Marinate means to relax. That's a nice, that's a creative one. Also, there's a portmanteau word. Chill and relax becomes chillax. Now, there's a podcast topic all, all by itself. Anyway, I've had fun. It diverted me from watching the stock market bounce around and hearing news of mounting statistics on people with the coronavirus. A nice diversion. And it reminds me that the uh, the spoken word's power to communicate truth and rather than dissemble, it is of particular importance right now. And it's power to steady and, and to comfort. We really do need calm, clear, truthful voices right now to face this common enemy. So let's all practice that and look for it in our leaders too. Thanks for joining me. Or should I say... Thanks, they for joining J. E. May. All pay, I may. Stay well. And if you're sheltering in place, confined at home, and have always wanted to study dialects with me, or audiobooks, or Shakespeare, but never had the time, I would be delighted to work with you. Please follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter at Dialect Paul. Join me next time on In a Manner of Speaking.